Good morning. How's everyone doing? We're having quite the eventful morning. Uh, so the technology has rebelled. Uh, and so this is not the normal look up, uh, the look, uh, but we're, we're, we're running with what we have. We have regular lights. We have one spot <laughs> that's on me. Uh, and I'm told to be careful because I'm not able to see and I'll fall off the stage. So I'm going to try not to do that. That's my goal. Uh, but welcome. Hey, if you've decided to join us this morning, we're so glad that you're here. We're so glad you decided to join us. Uh, if you've not yet met me, my name is Jeff. My beautiful wife, Jessica, and I, we are the youth pastors here at Grace, and I get to uh, bring a message about once a month. Uh, I'll be up. Today, we'll be continuing our series in 1 Samuel. We'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 19 and chapter 20. Uh, I think it's going to be a, a really good study today. So uh, before I dive in, I always like to give a little bit of a recap, catch everyone up, where we're at, what's going on. And so... Uh, 1 Samuel is a, is a book in the Bible about a man, surprisingly enough, named Samuel. Um, he is, uh, he was, his mother's name was Hannah. She was unable to have children, uh, but God blessed her with a child. She named him Samuel, and uh, she dedicated him to the Lord. He becomes Israel's last judge, which is, you know, their ruling political figure. Um, he becomes last judge and the first prophet. Um, and so he becomes the prophet. He leads Israel for, for many years, and then the people want to be like all the other nations, and they want a king for themselves. And so they, they choose Saul, who in Scripture is said to be the tallest and the best looking. You know, all the same things my wife says about me, that, all those things, right? And uh, so they choose Saul because he looked the part. And he did well. He won battles for Israel, but he quickly began to rebel against God. He started to, to go against the commands of God and make his own decisions that were directly against God. And so God took his favor from Saul and placed it on another young man. He was actually a child at the time. It was a man, a boy named David. And so David is told he would become the next king of Israel. Uh, but he is still a child. In fact, he comes, and we hear the story of David versus Goliath, where he comes as a child with a slingshot, essentially, and, and takes down a giant. Then David uh, has another job where he is playing music, so he's evidently quite the musician. And David plays music for Saul because Saul is constantly tormented by evil spirits. And so David would come and play music, and it would ease Saul so that he could rest. And so he has that position, but as David grew older, the Spirit of God was with him. And so as he continued to grow, God blessed him more and more and more. And so Israel had more victories and more victories, and David was always at the front of the victory. And so people would be singing songs about, about uh, the victories that they've had, and they gave Saul credit, but they gave David more credit. And this bothered Saul so much that Saul tries to kill David, and where we're going to jump in today, he's tried to kill him two times. You know, which is not how you make friends, right? You don't try to kill people. They frown on that. All right, so as we're going to be diving in today, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 19, and I'm going to really need you guys to laugh at my bad jokes. Um, it just helps a lot, right? Let me pray for us real quick, and we'll dive further in, okay? Father, we thank you so much for this day, Lord. We, we thank you for everything you do for us and you do through us, Lord. Um, I, I just I pray that you're here in this place, Lord, that it's, it's not my word that is heard, but it is your word, it is your truth. Lord, I just pray that, that you would be with each and every person here, God, that, that walls would be torn down, God, that, that our hearts would open, that our ears would be open, that we would hear and receive your truth today. Lord, I know that you are greater than the technology, God. You are greater than the problems and the battles we're having right now, Lord. You are greater than all these things, and we're trusting you today. Lord, we love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 
So last week, uh, Sam was up, and, and Sam brought the message, and he brought us all the way up to 1 Samuel 19, verse 10. And so I'll be picking up literally in verse 11, so we're just going to continue going from that point. But last week, he said something that I can attest to. He said that he is competitive. This is true. Uh, we are both competitive. Uh, we, you trust me, when we're like playing dodgeball, we're like really in it, and the kids are like, ow, ow, you know, I don't know to say, get quick, duck, dodge, dash, you know. Uh, and so, like, we're, we're into the game. We're, we're having a good time. We're competitive. I mean, I would say I'm so competitive that I'm more competitive than he is. So that's just, you know, another victory for me. Uh, I'm just throwing that out there. He can, he can, he can retaliate when he's back up. Uh, so much so that next week is the Super Bowl. Now, Super Bowl, none of my teams are in it. I could care less. However, we're having a Super Bowl party here at the church. You're all invited. This is your personal invitation. But there's going to be a chili cook-off. All right, listen. I've taken second place two years in a row, and I've had enough. This is my year. All right, you hear me? You're all going down. This is my year. I'm taking home that coveted white apron with gold print. All right? I will be the 2023 chili champion. That is what I'm excited about right now. I can't wait. for the, and, and watch this year. I'll get like fifth. I'm going to be so disappointed. All right. But anyway, be here next week and, uh, you know, vote for me. Uh, it's, it's a blind taste test. You, you don't know who they are. It might be the best one, though. Don't worry. Um, so we, we're going to have that. But football season this year, like, has anyone else just in love football season this year? Because I haven't. Okay. No one else. All right. Um, we're all Titans fans, I take it. So it's been a rough, it's been a rough season. But for me, it's even worse than my one team. It was my fantasy football season. All right, if you're not familiar with fantasy football, you're all the better for it. But just to catch you up, it's a group of football nerds get together. They all pick players that they like. And each week, your happiness is determined by how good those players do. All right? If your players do good, you get lots of points. If the player that does really good is on your bench, you get no, none of those points. And if you're like me, you'll always put the wrong person in in the wrong week. And so this year, though... We have, a, we have a church fantasy football team, or fantasy football league, um, and, and we have a trophy, and it goes home to whoever the winner is, and they get to keep it for the year. This year, I was determined to win. I was like, this is going to be my year. And so I spent more hours than I should have, like researching, like listening to the experts, and reading articles, and watching YouTube videos, and like following the players, following the trades, and following injury reports, and like all this stuff. Like, I'm like, I'm going to win, right? Because I'm competitive like that. And... So what happened is I did really good, really good. Great draft, draft went great. First half of the season undefeated, and then something happened. My star quarterback gets injured, and my whole season goes down the drain. I, don't, I think I win like two more games the rest of the season, and so I don't even make it to the playoffs, but I end up losing pretty, pretty bad. I think I grabbed fourth place, so not bad, but I mean not where I wanted to be, clearly. But what was really frustrating is in fantasy football, you can do all the right things. You can make all the right moves. You can put in the players that the experts suggest, the players that are supposed to do amazing, and you can bench the players that are supposed to do awful. And you can do all the right things, and you can still lose. Right? You can still lose. Now, I'm not actually upset about fantasy football. I'm not that competitive. It's fun. We, we talk some trash, but, but it's, it's, it's a fun game. But what is frustrating is when this happens in life. Right? When we do all the right things, when we say all the right words, when we put in all the right work, when we talk to all the right people, and we pray enough, and we, we're in Scripture enough, and we're doing all the things that we're told we should 
could do, and things still don't go as we had planned. And things still don't go how we wanted them to go. Right? We studied and still failed the test. Or we worked really hard, put in more hours than anybody else, and we still didn't get the promotion. We, we dieted and, and went to the gym, and, 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 and still the weight isn't coming off. I've prayed, and I've prayed, and I've prayed, and I've invited them to church, but my family members no closer to accepting Jesus. I've, I've worked, and I've been patient, and I've listened, but my marriage is still on the rocks. You know, sometimes... We can do all of the right things and still don't get the outcome that we desire. And so we're, we're left often with a phrase that my, my daughter loves to say, that's not fair. You're right, it's not. Life is not fair. We don't get the outcomes that we want. Life doesn't go how we planned. We do all the right things and things still bleh. That's the technical term. Because oftentimes we're in life and all we can say is, this is what it is. You see, but what I want to suggest is that we'd be better off putting our faith not in the outcome, but in the creator. That we should place our faith in the God who is faithful, who is just, and who is greater than every problem and every circumstance and every hardship. Because we serve a God that says that he will work all things together. So that's the good and the bad. That's the hardships and the prosperity. That's, that's all of these situations. He works all things together for the good who, of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose, right? He works these things together. That's the God that we serve, is the God that works all things together. And what I want to suggest is that our hardships, though we may not enjoy them, will grow us more than our prosperity. That our difficult times will make us into a better human than our times where we get everything we want. Don't believe me? Have you ever met a child, or an adult for that matter, that's never experienced discipline? I'd say so. You ever met a child that's never heard the word no? If you have, then you could attest that getting everything you want does not make you a better person. In fact, it's the, the hard times that build character. It's overcoming challenges that builds faith. It's the valleys that will grow us closer to Jesus than the mountaintops. You see, and so I'm not saying that when you're in the middle of a hardship, you're like, well, this stinks, but thank you, God. And maybe you should say that. But when you get to the other side, you see just what God was doing in the middle of it. My faith has never been stronger than it has been on the other side of a hardship. That's where our faith is made, and that's where our faith has grown. And so if you're here and, and you've, you've ever faced a hardship, if you've ever faced a difficult time, you've done all the right things, you've put in all the work, you've said the right prayers, and you've read the right scripture, and you've talked to the right people, and you've waited, and you've been patient, and you've trusted, and things still didn't go as planned, you're in good company. Because so did many, many, many of our leaders of the faith. Moses went through hardship. Aaron went through hardship. Jacob went through hardship. And the man we're going to be reading about today, David, went through hardships. Over and over and over again, they went through hardships. So what I've titled today's message is super uplifting, don't worry. It's called The Necessity of Hardship. The Necessity of Hardship. See, sometimes hardship is necessary. Difficult times are, are necessary because God can use these times to grow us into the people that we need to be for the kingdom of God, right? I believe that, they, that God used David's hardships to build him into the king that Israel needed at that time. 
So we're going to go and pick up. We're going to pick up in, in verse 11. And where we're at right now, um, Saul has, again, attempted to kill David two times. And so Jonathan, his son, John, uh, Saul's son, goes and talks to Saul and says, what are you doing? Why are you trying to kill David? David's a good man. You know, this is sinful. Don't do this. And Saul makes a promise he'll never do it again. So David comes back, begins to play the harp to help Saul out. Now, now keep in mind, David is not a mere child anymore. He is a grown man. He is a, he is a leader of armies. David is a bad dude, right? Saul is chilling in his bed trying to fight night terrors. I'm sorry, I downplayed that a little bit. But Saul is, is older and weaker at this point. David, at any point, could have took, took Saul out, probably without much effort. And then his best friend was the next king in line, Jonathan. He could have got away with it. But David shows what we call restraint. And I think that's something that so many Christians need to practice. You know, sometimes the world doesn't need your retaliation. They need your love. I'll say it one more time. Sometimes the world doesn't need your retaliation. They don't need the attitude back. They get that everywhere else. They need the love of Jesus. They need the love of Jesus. What would it look like the next time someone smarted off to you? You're like, hey, is everything all right? What if the next time someone like cuts you off in traffic, you just pray, say a little prayer for that person. What would it look like if we actually showed the love of Christ to the world instead of acting like the world to the world? There's a reason they call Christians hypocrites. And I, I, I spent 22 years of my life not a Christian. Trust me, we are. And there's a reason they call us that. Because we're not out there showing the love of Christ. We talk about a God that loves them, but we treat them like everyone else. What if we showed some restraint and we loved people the way Jesus loves them? What would the world look like if just every Christian today went out and loved people? The world would change in a single day. But we won't. We'll get mad. We'll get frustrated. Our temple will flare and we'll retaliate like everyone else. This week, practice not doing that. Practice restraint and practice love. Because David is sitting there and he's playing the harp for Saul. He's, he's, he's working right now, making Saul feel better. And Saul gets angry. Another spear comes over him and he lifts up and he throws another spear at David. David dodges the spear. And again, doesn't retaliate. He leaves. He runs. He goes back home. This is where we're going to pick up in verse 11. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. How did, how did he, she know that? How did she know that? Y'all think about that? Remember, Michal is, is Saul's daughter. This is, her, this is his daughter. She must have known her father well enough. This must not have been the first man that he's hunted down. Because she says, if you stay here until the morning, you'll be killed. She knew his tactics. She knew his strategy. So Michal let David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. Then Michal took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting uh, some goat's hair on the head. When Saul sent the men to capture David, Michal said, he is ill. And then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. That's ruthless. But when the men entered, there was an idol in the bed, and at the head of the bed was the goat's hair. Saul said to Michal, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? And so he's, he's like suddenly blaming her. He's like, why did you send my enemy away? Because remember, this is his daughter. This is his daughter. And so in this moment, I think it's telling to see that his own daughter, his flesh and blood, has chosen David over him. It's also telling that Jonathan, 
and chose David over him. His own children chose David over him. And so he comes and he, he gets her and, and she protects David, but then she also protects herself because she's like, well, he said he was going to kill me if I didn't let him go. And so she protected herself. But David at this point does something really interesting. He runs to, to Naoth. He runs to Naoth where Samuel is. And if you remember Samuel, the guy the book's about, uh, is the prophet of the Lord. And so I think it's telling that David, when, when things get difficult, when he faces challenges, whenever he, he faces hardships, he doesn't run to, to his group of friends. Right? He doesn't run even back home to Bethlehem. He runs to the prophet of the Lord. And we're going to see this over and over with David, even in, in, the, in his mess-ups, because David is nowhere near perfect. But we're going to see that over and over again, he runs to the Lord. He runs to God over and over and over and over again. His default is to turn to God. Something I've been talking to the students about for a long time now is that we need to change our default is that each and every one of us has a default way that we handle stress, a default way we handle hardships or anxiety or depression or loneliness or anger. We have a default way. And if that way worked, we wouldn't still experience those emotions. So I don't think our defaults are working. And we turn to many different things, right? We, some of us go for a ride. Some of us go for a walk. Some of us go for a run. I mean, not me, maybe you, right? We have a different way that we handle these things. Right? We, we, some, uh, some people, they, they go to the gym and they get the frustration out. Some people, they go to alcohol. Some people go to drugs. Some people go to pornography. We all have this default that they go to, to handle our stress, to handle our anxiety, to handle our hardship. And if that default was working, you wouldn't still experience those things. And so what I want you to do is change your default. Be like David. In the moments of hardship, run to the Lord. In the moments of stress, run to the Lord. In the moments of anger, run to the Lord. And so my challenge for them has been prayer, scripture, and praise. Every time you're depressed, every time you're anxious, every time you're struggling, pray to the Lord. That's you talking to God. Read scripture. That's God talking to you. And praise his name, and that's saying he is good no matter what. And when we do this at every turn, at every hardship, at every difficult moment, I promise it will bring you out on the other side better. So let's change our default. Let's be like David. Let's be like David, and in the middle of hardships, praise the Lord and turn to God. You see, he fled to, to Samuel, who was the prophet. Now, what's interesting is that while he was there, um, while he was running away, he wrote a, a psalm. And so this, this psalm is Psalm 59, and it literally says at the top, for the director of music, um, and then it says, when Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. And so I can kind of imagine Right now, as David is, is sitting with Samuel, like maybe they're, you know, Samuel's another tent going to sleep, and, and, and David's over here jotting this down. He says this, Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers, and save me from those who are after my blood. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, Lord. I have done no wrong. Yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight. You, Lord God Almighty, you who are, you who are the God of Israel. See, David wrote 73 of the Psalms. He's credited with 73 of the Psalms that we have. And almost every one of these Psalms is brought on by a sorrow. You see, if it weren't for the sorrow, uh, it was the sorrow that brought the Psalm. If it weren't for the sorrows, we wouldn't have the Psalms. 
And so it was these difficult moments, these hardships that David wrote about. But what is so beautiful is that David, he wrote about them, and he wrote about these hardships. And, and most of these, the most, or majority of the Psalms that are written are written during the 10 years that he's running from Saul. And so he's running from his very own people. And when he writes, he pins these beautiful words, including many of our favorites, Psalm 23, is written while he's running from Saul. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I think it's a beautiful phrase because what's a shepherd do? I've learned this from Lucas because I had no idea. A shepherd does everything for his sheep. Everything. He feeds them. He takes care of them. He clips their toenails. He trims them. He, he cares for them. He handles every part of their being. And so if, if we were to say something like, the Lord is my shepherd, I mean, it's, it's catchy. It goes to go down a postcard. But if we were to live like that, that means we rely on Jesus for everything. Everything, every aspect of our life. Every aspect of our life, we rely on the shepherd. And we know that Jesus is indeed the good shepherd. If we are saying he is our shepherd, we rely on him for everything. And we see over and over again, that's exactly what David did, is he relied on God for everything. He relied on God in, in every situation, in every circumstance, even when he was the one making the mistakes. He would turn back to God. So David goes, uh, he goes to, to Samuel. He tells Samuel all that's happening. I can just imagine this conversation. He goes up to Samuel. He's like, hey, you remember that time like I was just you know, a kid and I was taking care of some sheep and you showed up at my place and you're like, you're gonna be the next king. Well, like, do you have like a timeline on that? Because the current dude's trying to kill me and he's a little intimidating, right? David knows he's gonna be king, but he's just like, when, Lord? When's that gonna happen? And if we're honest, I think we're all praying that about our hardships, isn't it? But like, I, I know I shouldn't be going through this. I, I feel like you have better plans for me, Lord. I feel like this is not, not how my life is supposed to be, God. When, when am I getting out of this? When am I coming to the other side of this, Lord? When are you gonna save me? What we find is when we're faithful to the Lord, the Lord fights on our behalf. Yeah, we'll see this right here because Saul found out where David was. He found out that he was in Naoth with Samuel. And so he sent men, this is what it says, word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the spirit of God come on Saul's men and they also prophesied. Is that wild? Let me, let me explain. Because we often think of prophecy and prophesying as, as telling of future events. Absolutely what it can be. But the word in Hebrew, to prophesy, simply means to speak of the Lord, for the Lord to speak through you. That's what it means to prophesy. And so oftentimes this would be done in a meeting like this where a leader like, Sam, or like Samuel would be leading a, a, a meeting of, of prophecy where they're letting God speak through them. And there would often be like music and it would be a really uplifting moment. Um, and so what I can imagine is, is these soldiers that are coming to kill David, they walk up and Samuel is, is prophesying and praising the Lord. And they, they can't help but prophesy and they can't help but praise the Lord because the spirit of God is in that place. You see, but so they come back and Saul's like, you're useless. And so he sends another group. The same thing happens. And they come back and he sends another group and the same thing happens. And Saul's like, I got to do it myself. And so Saul goes... And the same thing happens. What would it be like if we were so close to God that even our enemies experienced him when they came near us? What would it look like if we were so filled with the Holy Spirit that when someone came to persecute us, they couldn't help but feel the power of Jesus in us? What would that look like? What would it look like if we walked so close with God that even our enemies encountered him 
Better yet, what would it look like if we walked close enough with him that our friends encountered him? Because I know a lot of Christians still ain't doing that. Anyway, that's another day. Saul comes and he, he, he experiences the spirit of God. And he begins to prophesy and he begins to praise. His goes even further though, because it says that he gets naked and praises, which is not the way we typically do it, right? And so this creates a vivid picture in our mind, but let me fix it for you just a little bit. Most scholars believe what's referring to here is that he becomes naked of his kingly garb. So the things that he's wearing that dons him as a king. So he, he removes his crown and he removes his armor and he lays vulnerable before the Lord. It, he didn't get down to his tidy whities he, he, like, he just took off his king, king's robe. It changes the picture, it does. He's like, that's weird, Saul. You do your thing, buddy. Right? And so he goes and the spirit of the Lord comes on him. And he, he, he submits before the Lord, and you think that this would change you. But some people are just too stubborn. At this point, David gets spooked, and he, he decides to head on out. So chapter 20, it says, Then David fled from Naoth to, at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan said. Jonathan replied, you are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives, as you live, there is only a step between me and death. So they go on to, to make a plan here. Jonathan is going to go and he's going to find out from his father if he is indeed trying to kill David. And they would come back and he would deliver a, a coded message uh, of whether David can come back because it's safe or whether he needs to run. And so he goes and he, he gets this message from his father. And it turns out his father is indeed trying to kill David. He finds out because his father indeed tries to kill him. And so uh, Jonathan brings the message back. But during their original encounter, I want to I want to share this because it's going to be important. And when we get over to Second Samuel, during the original encounter, before he left, before he ever went to talk to Saul, and before Saul tried to kill him, he said this. Jonathan said this to David. But show me unfailing kindness, like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Now, this is an interesting scripture because we have to remember that the next king in line is actually Jonathan. The next king will be Jonathan. He is the, the, the son of the current king. Next in line is Jonathan. He would probably have made a pretty decent king as well. But what he's saying here is he's saying he knows that David will be the king. You see, it was common practice at the time whenever a kingdom was taken over, when a new king came in place that was not from the family line of the current king, they would kill off everyone that was of the family of the other king, of the, the king that was there. That way no one could come and claim a right to the throne. And so what Jonathan is asking at this moment is that David show kindness when he takes his throne. Show kindness to him and show kindness to his family. We'll see this come forward in 2 Samuel chapter 9 whenever David shows mercy uh, and grace to Jonathan's son. You see, after Jonathan goes and talks to Saul, Saul tries to kill him, he comes back and delivers the message to David. This is the last time they will ever speak. We know that Jonathan and David were very good friends. It says they, they shared a great brotherly love for each other. 
Um, they, were, they were really close, and this is the last moment that they'll ever spend together, the last moment they'll ever speak. And so when David becomes king, he shows uh, uh, mercy to the son of Jonathan, whereas he, he could have came in and killed the son of Jonathan. Uh, he didn't. He showed mercy, and he brought him into the king's court. And so a beautiful gospel message in, in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And uh, at this point, Jonathan comes. He delivers the message. They, they depart from each other. And David goes on the run where he'll spend the next 10 years running for his life. David will spend the next 10 years running from Saul, hiding in caves, hiding and running as armies chase after him. Which is kind of amazing to think someone as mighty as King David running for his life. And so when I said if you've experienced hardships, if you've experienced difficulties, if life hasn't always gone the way that you planned it to go, you're in good company. Because the likes of people like David also experienced these gigantic hardships. David was chased. David ran. David, they tried to kill David over and over. But you see, God used that difficult situation to turn David into the king that Israel needed. And you see, God can use the hardships in your life to turn you into who he needs you to be for the kingdom of God. It just takes trusting him in the midst of it. You see, I find that we always come out better on the other side of hardship when we trust in God in it. And so I'm going to, as I close, I'm going to jump to the New Testament. And I want to share a story, an event that happens in Luke chapter 8. Um, if, if you guys have not watched The Chosen, you know, everyone has differing opinions on it. I, I really enjoy it. It brings a lot of light and emotion to, to, to some of the stories that we read through and, and just ignore everything that's happening. Um, and they, they covered it this week, and so when I read it in my Bible, it just, brought, it just blew up. It brought it to life for me. Um, so there's this moment, uh, in, and Jesus uh, is approached by a man who's, whose young daughter is dying. His daughter's 12 years old, and his daughter is, is dying. And he comes up, and he asks Jesus to heal his daughter. Now, we've read, if you're a Christian, you've read this story, and I think sometimes that's a disservice to us because we read through the story, and we just see words on a page, and we're waiting for the miracle because we know it's coming. But if if you were this man, at this time, your daughter is laying in bed, breathing her last breaths. And you are, are going to the only hope that you have, which, by the way, this man was not just a normal man. He was a ruler of a synagogue, meaning he was a Jewish leader. He had no business coming to Jesus. This is how desperate he was. He was so desperate that he swallowed his pride, and he went to Jesus, and he asked for help. How different might our lives look if we swallowed our pride and asked Jesus for help? I think there's a lot of people that could be delivered today if we would swallow our pride and ask Jesus for help. You see, he goes and he asks Jesus for help. He says, heal my daughter, Jesus. Heal my daughter. And the next, the next verse is amazing. It just says, Jesus went. Jesus went. And as he went, crowds started to follow it around him. Jesus gains, has gained a lot of popularity at this point. Word gets out, Jesus is about to do something incredible. The crowds come up and, and, and barrel in around him. The actual Hebrew, uh, Greek word used here is the word crush. They began to crush in around Jesus. And so if you can imagine the desperation in this father, he's going, he's trying to get the doctor, trying to get the physician to his daughter who's breathing her last breaths, and he's in the middle of a traffic jam. Can you imagine how you would feel in that moment? How you would feel in that moment when you're trying to get the doctor, the only person that could help your child, and then you experience traffic. Like, guys, just move. This is important. We got to go. We got to go. And you see... Luke 8 throws you for a loop because they bring in a whole other character. This is, this is amazing. This happened. 
is then we, we meet a woman who's had a, a condition of bleeding for 12 years. Condition of bleeding, uh, this is a menstrual problem. Jewish law stated that any woman on their menstrual cycle was considered unclean. That means they were, they were ostracized. They were not allowed to enter into the temple. They weren't allowed to have physical contact with any person. If they, they had physical contact with any person, that person was deemed unclean and could no longer be around their family. And so this woman has struggled with this for 12 years. 12 years, she can't touch anyone. She can't enter the temple. If she walked into the streets, people would see her and they would shout, unclean, unclean, and they'd run her out of, out of public. And we're introduced to this woman who, who comes up and she sees this rabbi that she's heard about. Jesus, of course, was a Jewish rabbi. She sees this rabbi that she's heard about. And she sees this crowd. You can just imagine the, the anxiety she has as she sees the crowd. She knows she's not allowed in public. She's not allowed to enter into the crowd. But, the, but her hope is on the other side of the crowd. Her hope is just on the other side of the crowd. And so she, she pushes her way through. She sneaks her way through knowing that if anyone sees her, if anyone notices her, they're going to shout, unclean, unclean, and send her away. And she gets up there next to Jesus and she does something confusing. She reaches out and she just touches the hem of his garment. But, 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 if, I, but if I'm struggling with this, like if I, I've struggled with some stuff, right? And if Jesus is here before me, like I'm not, I'm not going to swap his garment. I'm going to grab the guy. But Jesus, I'm hurting. Jesus, I've been bleeding for 12 years. Save me. Look at me. Help me. But she just brushes the hem of his garment. Let me, let me explain. Hold on. So a rabbi at this time would have wore something about like this. And they'd have wore it over their shoulders just like this. This is Dennis. I'm going to Israel, man. I'm getting my own. I'm so excited. But a rabbi would have wore something just like this. And the, the hem of the garment is this right here. It's this fringe. These tassels that came off of it. But at this time, there was another name for this. They would call this the, the wing. And a, and a beautiful, like a little bird. Because what would happen is the rabbi would walk through towns the, the, the edges would blow up and it looked like wings floating behind them. And so they would call this the wing. And so this Jewish woman who needed hope more than anything else, who needed healing, who needed Jesus, she would have grown up singing these Jewish songs. One of the songs had been out of Micah 4. And it said, the Messiah will come with healing on his wings. You see, she had faith that Jesus was not just an ordinary rabbi. She had faith that Jesus was different. She had faith that Jesus could heal her. She had faith that Jesus could, could take care of her. What no one else could do, she had faith that Jesus was the one that could do it. Micah 4 says, the son of righteousness will come and healing will be on his wings. And so she reached out and she knew that if she just touched the wing of the Messiah, if she just touched the hem of his garment, she would be healed. And Jesus is walking through this crowd on a mission, on his way to heal this man's daughter. And all of a sudden, he stops. The Bible, the Bible explains this to us. In the Gospel of Luke, it says that she stops and she trembles in fear. Why? Because she just made contact with, as an unclean woman with a rabbi. She was waiting for Jesus to turn around and shout, unclean, unclean, and send her away. You see, but she just encountered a rabbi unlike any other rabbi. You see, any other rabbi, if you make contact with them as an unclean person, they would then be made unclean. But when an unclean person makes contact with Jesus, they are made clean. You and I, we're about as unclean as it gets. 
We have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. We have made mistake after mistake after mistake. We have rebelled against the very word of God and we have no excuse about it. Yet whenever we touch Jesus, we are immediately made perfect. We are made perfect within the eyes of God. His blood was shed to cover our sin. Our sins, as the beautiful song says, are made white as snow. You see, when an unclean person makes contact with Jesus, they are then made clean. See, I walked through those doors 11 years ago. I knew nothing about Jesus. But I was about as unclean as they came. Listen, I acted good because I knew that's what was expected. But in, in my mind and in my heart, I only cared about me. I just assumed that everybody else was exactly the same, that everybody else walked through life with the same anger, the same frustration, the, the same self-centeredness. I just assumed that everyone else walked through life exactly the same way as I did. And then I heard the, the still small voice of God, and not, not audibly, but through his messengers that he sent to speak. Because my wife drove me into this church and we came and I heard a message about Jesus. And I'm like, that's cool. And I got interested and I started to learn more. And, and over, the, over, over the course of several months, I grew closer and closer and closer to Jesus. I, 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 we, we came here, we came every Sunday, we listened to messages about Jesus. We got invited to start helping with youth ministry, and I started hearing messages about Jesus two times a week. And next thing I know, I'm watching sermons on my computer at work when I was supposed to be working. I don't know why. I just wanted to. I wanted to learn more about this dude. And then I went to a conference in Nashville, and Jesus changed my entire life. And I knew in that moment I didn't just accept him as Savior, but I accepted him as my, I accepted a call to ministry, that I would give him my entire life. And it changed everything. You see, but I sat in these seats thinking that I was too unclean for Jesus. I was that guy that was like, if I walk into a church, it's going to burn down. We all know that guy, right? We, there's at least two of them in everybody's life. I promise you, you are not a greater sinner than he is a savior. Romans 5.8 says, yet while you were still a sinner... Not, not after you got all good, not after you got all cleaned up, not after you covered up the tattoos and you poured out all the beer. No, 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 no. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. He knew your past, present, future sins. He knew every mistake you would make, every temptation you would give into. He knew your entire life. And he laid on the cross and he loved you. And he loved you and he shed his blood so that you could be saved. See, that's the God that we follow, that in the middle of hardships, he is still good. In the middle of uh, confusion, in the middle of uncertainty, in the middle of pain, he is still good. And he works all things together for good. We serve a God that is greater than every hardship. We serve a God that is greater and bigger than every giant. And we serve a God that loves each and every one of his children. He loves every one of you, no matter what you've done, no matter how far away you've been, no matter how many times you've rebelled, no, many, no, many, no matter how many times you've fallen short, no matter how little you can talk, he loves you. He loves you. And he loves you. And that was almost the message that got to me, is that no matter how many times I'm messed up, God loves me. And he laid his life down to pay for my sins. You see, the gospel message is really easy, really clear. We're some messed up people. We have rebelled against God. We knew what is right and we did wrong. We do it over and over again. 
Jesus, God looked at us and he loved us, but his law demanded that there must be a penalty paid for sin. We rebelled against God. We fell short, and the wages of sin is death. Eternal damnation was, our, uh, was ours. That's what we deserved. We came up guilty in court. We deserved hell. But God loved you and I so much that he didn't want to see you in hell. He wanted you to be with him for all eternity. And so he sent his son down to live a perfect sinless life, that he would become the perfect sacrifice, the spotless lamb, that he would lay his life down on the cross. You see, a penalty must be paid, and God paid the penalty. And because of what he did on the cross, he has opened up an avenue for you to come to the Father, perfect and blameless. And it's not by your own doing. It's not by your own abilities, because we don't have those. If it were based on us, we would fall short every single time. But it's not based on how good we are. It's based on how good Jesus is. And when we give him our life, when the Father looks at us, he no longer sees our mistakes. He sees his son. And we are covered by the blood of Jesus, and then we are made righteous. It doesn't matter where you're at or what you've been through, what you've done. That gift is for you. Let me pray for you. If you're here today and you've never made the decision to follow Jesus. I mean, I walked in here, I knew the stories of Jesus, but I never followed him. If you're here today and you've never made the decision to follow Jesus, I want to give you that opportunity. Romans 10, 9 makes it incredibly clear, incredibly easy. If you say with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Christ is Lord, you will be saved. And so if that's you today and you want to make that decision and you want to follow Jesus, you want to give him your life, you want to experience salvation, the saving grace of God, I'm just going to say a prayer and I just want you to repeat it after me. You can repeat it audibly, you can repeat it silently, but remember it's not just to the chair next to you. You're praying it directly to Jesus. His word says that he is here. He will never leave you and he will never forsake you. So say this prayer after me. Jesus, today I give you my life. Jesus, today I am yours. I put my faith in you alone. Jesus, today I turn away from my sins. And I follow you. I believe you are the son of God. And that you died for my sins. And that you rose on the third day. You defeated sin and you defeated death. Jesus, today I am yours. Amen. And I believe that if you prayed that prayer here and you prayed it to Jesus and you meant it and you felt it in your heart, today you are saved. The Bible says your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Your life will never be the same again. I just want to pray for you as a body of believers and then we're going to sing three more songs. We just kind of changed up the format a little bit today. Keep you on your toes, right? Let me just pray for you as a body, as a family, and then we're going to praise the name of Jesus. I tell my students, the prayer scripture praise, you're supposed to do this every day. Church is a cheat code. You had to come in and do all three at once. All right? Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you so much for this day, Lord. We thank you for everything you do for us and you do through us, God. I just pray for your Holy Spirit to be in this place right now. Father, I pray that you would, you would just speak to those that are struggling here today, God. You know uh, the hardships they're facing. You know the difficult times they're coming up against, Lord. I just pray that you would help to give them faith to, to endure this time, Lord. Faith to, to get through it, God. You would guide their steps. You would guide their path, Lord. Uh, I just pray that whoever's hurting here right now, they would experience your Holy Spirit and they would experience comfort and they would experience peace, Lord. I just pray for you to be here in this place, Lord. We give it all up to you. Father, we love you.
In Jesus' name, amen.